0: Chapter 6 of The Queen of Appalachia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Queen of Appalachia by Joe H. Borders. Chapter 6 Her Mind a Blank. It was about the middle of January, some seven or eight months following the events related in the preceding chapter that the young merchant of Princeton might have been seen in company with his old college chum and roommate, J. L. Brownlee, leisurely wending his way up a beautiful tree-lined avenue of the famous college town of Old Virginia. Mr. Brownlee had been advised of his coming, and was at the station to welcome his old friend and companion back to the scene of their pleasant college days. Although five or six years his senior, Brownlee had always regarded his chum in the nature of a twin brother, and they were very much attached to one another. During their school days their intimacy was of a pronounced type, and they were inseparable companions, their customs, likes and dislikes, and tastes harmonizing to a remarkable degree. A carriage had been engaged to convey them up town, but Paul induced his friend to dismiss it. He preferred to walk. The fashionable thoroughfare which they had to traverse to reach their destination was too inviting on this ideal day for a closed cab. Paul remembered the pleasure a stroll along this familiar route in the old days superinduced and he longed to look again upon the scenes that gave him such delight and enjoyment. "'You are still in possession of our old rooms, Brownlee? That is splendid. By the way, let me congratulate you on your promotion. I knew you would get there. I always told you so.' "'Yes, I thought of your prediction when I was first named, and I wished you were here to share the enjoyment it gave me. You deserve it, Brownlee. I presume you are still the same indefatigable Bible student?' "'My favourite study, Thornton, and I don't mind telling you I have made wonderful progress.' I remember you used to try and get me tangled up on biblical subjects, and I am glad to have you with me again. I think I can give you a better insight into the new thought now. I dare say, replied Paul, I may just as well confide in you. My object in visiting you is none other than to take a thorough course in your favorite study, under your teaching. My mind is prepared for it, and I am ready for a spiritual baptism. Then the battle will be an easy one, in fact it is already won. I was glad to see you, but now I am delighted.' The conversation continued along this line until they reached the boarding-house, where Paul was again given a royal welcome by the landlady, a charming woman who held Paul Thornton in the very highest esteem. Paul had graduated with the highest honours, and the old faculty gave him a handsome reception at the college chapel next day. Many of the students he knew were still there, and each vied with the other in doing him honour, for here as well as elsewhere he was a general favourite, and the praise and compliments heaped upon him were enough to have turned an older head than his. But Paul was equal to the occasion, and escaped without even a slight attack of the swelled head. Six months with Brownlee had given Paul a thorough biblical education, and he returned home a new man and a confirmed believer in the new order of things. He had progressed far enough to thoroughly demonstrate the efficacy and power with which he had been baptised, yet he refrained from imparting that knowledge to his home people, knowing their orthodox views were as impregnable as adamant. When occasion required, he did not seek to hide his light under a bushel, but gave freely of his knowledge and gifts, taking care not to cast his pearls before swine, going about doing good in his own way. Princeton marvelled at the great change in Paul while he gave up none of the attractive features of the social world and was as full of life and gaiety as ever. His personality was clothed with a heaven-born raiment that was a mystery for years. Paul had regularly spent a part of the summer in the mountains, hunting and fishing. He was fond of sport, and nothing could induce him to give up his usual summer vacation. Just now he was busy planning for his annual outing. It was early in July, and he and a half-dozen agreeable companions had completed their itinerary, which included a visit into the picturesque Virginia mountains. They provided themselves with guns, ammunition, fishing tackle, and other necessaries including blankets, and had given orders for the building of a light craft to carry them to the headwaters of the Chatteroy River, where an incident happened that was unprecedented, a midsummer tide the like of which was unknown to the oldest inhabitant. The quiet little stream of a few days ago suddenly became a mighty river, enabling one of the largest steamers to navigate some forty miles farther up the stream than it ever had before. Paul and his party took advantage of this steamboat excursion, and were far into the mountains in a short time. For three days the jolly hunting party climbed rugged mountains and crossed deep ravines. During their journey so far not a single sign of human habitation had been seen. It was climbing one mountain to the top to behold another and mightier one beyond, and so it continued each day. The forest was so dense at times that their progress was greatly retarded, and more than once they would arrive on the precipice of a towering cliff that overhung the mighty depths below, into which one false step would have sent them to dismal agonizing death on the rocks a half mile below. However much has been written of the grandeur and glorious scenery in different portions of the globe, the writer will vouch for the truth of the statement of Paul Thornton and his companions, that nowhere on earth can be found such enchanting scenes as the mountains at and beyond the waters of the Chatteroy River. The vast panorama of wooded hills and sky-scraping mountains, densely covered with forests and huge rocks, majestic oaks and clinging vines, huge cliffs and charming caverns, carpeted with rich moss, could not be exceeded in this or any other country. Add to this mind-picture the beautiful foliage that filled the immense space, on a lovely July morning in that charming galaxy of verdant timber, inhabited by every species of the feathered tribe, whose grand chorus echoed and re-echoed from dale and mountain, in unison with the music and drama of the wild animals below. Imagine a grander, more glorious scene, and heaven has lost its charm. On the cloud-touching peak of the gigantic mountain, the supreme tower of the seemingly endless chain, sat Paul Thornton, silent and alone drinking in the remarkable splendor of the brilliant scene never will the memory of this radiant heaven-inspired picture fade from his elevated point of view his eyes travelled miles upon miles in every direction sweeping the grand spectacle of never-fading splendor in landscape the report from a rifle penetrated his ears and hastily clutching his gun he arose and quickly started down the mountainside in the direction of the sound on and on he went but no sign of his companions was found In his haste to join, the many opportunities for bagging game were lost, and once a mountain lion crossed his path without injury. A couple of hours of fruitless pursuit convinced him that he had taken the wrong direction. He was no doubt many miles from his friends, and he was at a loss what to do next. His gun had been used frequently, but no answering signal reached his ears. He was seated on the trunk of a huge tree, undetermined which direction to take, when a bloodthirsty-looking beast came tramping slowly towards him. He was a stranger to paul his first impression was that the unwelcome visitor was a grizzly but closer inspection proved he was at fault on the impulse of the moment he jumped to his feet and poured shot into the animal this only infuriated the approaching quadruped and with a blood-curdling roar that reverberated over the mountain sides he increased his gait and paul took to his heels with remarkable swiftness escaping down the mountain in his flight he ran into a well-beaten path which he followed Knowing that they were now separated, possibly for days, Paul kept to the path, hoping it would lead him to some place of habitation, nor was he disappointed, for late that afternoon from the top of a mountain he saw a log hut in the valley below. Not far from the cabin was a stream, and after a careful examination of the surrounding country he made up his mind that the stream was the Chatteroy or one of its tributaries. Forcing his way through brambles and bushes he finally reached the river, on the mossy banks of which he sat down to rest and think. No doubt he was thoroughly exhausted, for he was soon fast asleep. How long he remained in dreamland he was unable to determine, being suddenly aroused by a piercing scream. He was on his feet in an instant and hastened in the direction of the cry. Quickly arriving on the edge of the river, he discovered the source of the scream that had so startled him. About in the middle of the stream he noticed the head and shoulders of a woman, who was struggling to keep above water. Without the loss of a moment he plunged into the river, and was soon towing the drowning form to shore. He was an expert swimmer, and was perfectly at home in the water. But a short time before he was puzzling his brain as to how he would reach the rude dwelling house on the opposite shore, and he solved that problem as he swam towards the other side, holding the lifeless form and his gun in one hand, while with the other he reached dry land and safety. Quickly carrying his burden to a grassy plat nearby, he gently deposited her, face downward on the ground. Water flowed freely from her mouth. Life seemed extinct her hands were still warm and he rubbed them he shook the body rolled it over and over and placing his ear over her heart he was given no hope he had read of remedies to be applied for restoring drowning persons but his memory was clouded what can i do help help he cried at the top of his powerful voice but there was no response save a mocking echo in his despair and anguish after all hope of bringing her back to life was rapidly diminishing He paused, and his frame shook, until he could almost feel the ground tremble under his feet. Away up there in the wilderness, with no help, with the almost absolute certainty that at his feet was a human being beyond aid, Paul smiled. His agony and excitement had given way to calmness and perfect peace. The anxiety that so visibly affected his countenance and actions hitherto had entirely disappeared, and a pleased expression haunted his vision. Paul opened his eyes and they were concentrated upon the individual before him but an instant, when her body trembled from head to foot as if electrified, her hands moved in unison with the body, the phantom-like face suddenly becoming diffused with life blushes, and blue eyes opened. She stretched forth her hand and with Paul's assistance stood on her feet. Her lips parted, showing two rows of pearly white teeth and an exquisite mouth. The smile that lit up her countenance was singularly beautiful, and her entire face and bearing eminently patrician. "'Be not afraid, sweetheart,' said he gently. "'You are safe with me.' "'Where am I? "'Surely this is not heaven?' she asked in a soft voice, still smiling. "'Oh, I had such a beautiful dream,' she continued. "'I was plunging over precipices into immense space, "'and I drifted into one vast dismal cave "'and was hurled through angry waters, to certain death it seemed, "'when I arrived at a beautiful landing, the base of a grand stairway, "'where angels were ready to receive and welcome me. "'I could not resist their invitation and we started up the steps,' "'and when assured that we were near the top, "'I awoke to find an... an... you smiling at me. "'A glorious dream, but no doubt it ended in disappointment,' began Paul. "'But let me suggest that we find a place of shelter "'where you can dry your dripping garments, "'and perhaps exchange them for others.' "'Thank you. You are very kind,' she replied simply, "'noting for the first time the condition of her costume. "'I am sure I do not understand how I came to be in this plight. "'My mind seems a blank.' "'Then think no more about it,' replied Paul. It will recur to you later on, taking her arm. End of chapter six. Recording by Julian Prattley.